This is Ozarks at Large for Tuesday, January 24th, 2023. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellums. The National Weather Service is placing most of our region in a winter storm warning now through 6 o'clock tomorrow morning. Be careful. Later this hour, we can expect to hear from singer-songwriter and Fort Smith native J.D. Clayton. He lives in Nashville now, and his new record will come out soon. Ozarks at Large's Timothy Dennis visited with him recently, and that conversation is in our second half hour. The 94th Arkansas General Assembly continues to meet in Little Rock, and its expected lawmakers will soon be discussing education and criminal justice reform packages, though bills have not yet been unveiled. Arkansas's new attorney general... Republican Tim Griffin, is providing his input on criminal justice reform. He says he wants as many as 5,000 more prison beds in the state. He recently discussed his wishes for criminal justice reform with Roby Brock from our partner, Talk Business and Politics. Most of this crime, a significant part of it, is driven by people who who have been arrested numerous times for violent crime and should have never been released in the first place. So they're going to serve more of their sentence, but let me say this, it's going to be scaled. So for violent crimes, you're either going to have zero parole or you'll serve 85%, like the federal. If it's nonviolent, then there's there's a 50% category and a 25% category, but you can so you'll get the whole sentence. But you can earn your way out by getting a degree, learning how to weld, learning how to drive a truck, learning how to be an electrician. If, so it puts the honest on the prisoner. You get in prison and you don't earn that down, you're there for the whole time. The current system says, doesn't really matter what you do, we're letting you out early. We had one example of a guy that had 17 violations. Uh, he had violations in 17 of the 24 months he was in prison. He got a 12-year sentence, was out in 24 months, yep. okay? Even though, even though he had committed all, these, all this misconduct in prison. The bottom line is we have got to have the default as you do the sentence you're given because it's a deceptive to the public, right, Roby. two-fold question here. So there's going to be a price tag yes, for putting is. people in yes, prison longer. Absolutely. And we're already building a new prison to supposedly yeah. create another 1,000 beds, which we could fill up yeah. today. Yeah, let me address so, that. So how big will the prison yeah. be? Yeah, let me address and that. And do you have a price tag yeah, well, on what all of this stuff's well, going to cost? So let me, let me address the, the, the general construct, which is can't believe we've got to spend all this money. Let me tell you what. We are 20 years behind. When you don't clean your I tell my kids, when you don't clean your room daily or weekly, it gets really, really bad, and you have to fumigate the dang thing. Well, let me tell you. We have delayed building prison capacity for decades. How big, are, how big is the prison space we're going okay, to add? Okay, so we need minimum three, in my view. 3,000. Yeah, and here's why. We, let me say this to all of our people who go, oh, we don't need to build prisons. Let me tell you something. The truth is we've been building prisons. We've been building them for years as a matter of, of, of practice and a practical matter because we have been quietly pushing our violent felons into, they don't have room in state prison, right. we've been pushing them into county jails, yeah. which has basically made county jails useless right. for the purpose of putting misdemeanors, DUI, DUIs, etc. So we have basically made misdemeanor justice irrelevant. So you've been building them, you've just been doing it by pushing people out of county yeah. jails. So we need 3,000 to cover the 2,000 that are in county jails that shouldn't be and another thousand for growth. 
But I think ultimately we're going to need like five. And you go, oh, that's so many. It's so many because for 20 years this has been ignored. Prosecutors and what their needs have been ignored. Uh, The defense side, which is constitutionally required, it's been ignored. Our criminal justice system has been underfunded. Do we have to spend money? Yes. People say we can't afford it. Let me tell you something. We can't afford not to do this. If you want to run jobs out of our state... 5,000 prison beds, though, you're talking as much as $500 million to create a new I'm gonna bed let right the, there. I'm going to let the legislature... Uh, but you're, you're okay with that. $500 million for prison beds. The fundamental... Not to mention the other programs what, that you're talking about, yeah, though, I which are going to have the, another price I, tag. Whatever the price tag is, using money wisely, whatever the price tag is, yes. There is much more from their conversation at talkbusiness.net. As we've reported earlier this year, a coalition of legal organizations and nonpartisan policy organizations asking Governor Sanders to invest taxpayer money in what the groups call modern proven means to address needs of families and communities. In a press release, Zachary Crow, the executive director of Decarcerate, writes that talk of expanding prisons in an attempt to lower crime rates and address overcrowding in prisons and jails shows a lack of imagination on the part of legislators. Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders' omnibus education and reform bill is expected to be in front of legislators soon. The new governor has already issued several executive orders and spoken to a school choice rally during her first few days in office. Ruby Brock sat down with Rex Nelson, the senior editor of the Arkansas Democrat Gazette and former policy and communications director for Governor Mike Huckabee to get Nelson's assessment of the first two weeks of the new governor's term. I went back and I contrasted the first day in office for the two of them uh, in an article that will be running in a week or two. And Asa Hutchinson, you'll remember, spent much of his first day calling CEOs of companies around the country saying, come do business in Arkansas. He wanted to set that tone early that I'm all about jobs for Arkansas and I'm about getting computer science in the schools and moving the state forward that way. Sarah Huckabee Sanders, meanwhile, like you said, starts issuing executive proclamations. Now, I don't think that surprised any of us. In the big scheme of things, I can tell you as a guy who worked in the governor's office, for about 10 years. Most executive proclamations are pretty meaningless, frankly. (laughs) But they sent a message to her red meat crowd around the country that largely funded her campaign. Let's remember, her campaign was funded by Trump supporters from around the country. That's how she got the money early to scare Tim Griffin out of the race, to scare Leslie Rutledge out of the race. So she started the day, or started the administration, throwing them red meat. What do you make of the fact that we are, um, you know, we're still not, we still haven't seen details of some of the legislation that she wants to push. She's, she's laid out there some of the overarching themes that she wants. She's certainly had the transition period to put some pieces together, but I'm not sure any governor starts on day one with a package of bills that, it, that he has been ready to run. Here's the difference, and here's when if I were grading the first couple of weeks, my grade on Sarah Sanders would probably be a little tougher than on previous governors. Usually you'll have a new governor come in and you got to give them a little break on this first session. They've been scrambling to hire staff, transition, so forth. But all of us knew, Roby, that Sarah Sanders would be the next governor for more than a year. I mean, it was almost preordained from the moment she announced. And we talked about this on election night when we were on the air together. I think she missed a very good chance to go on 
and start prepping all of last year, since she had an easy race, to start prepping for this first session. Instead, my sense is we've got a governor's office that is woefully unprepared right now, still two weeks in, talking in these broad generalities and not giving us details on anything. Yeah, there are some things that are being drafted, I think, but, right. uh, but it's not right. there yet. But, but let, me, let me give you a difference. Uh, for instance, when I worked for her father, Governor Mike Huckabee, coming into the 2003 session, we had to answer the Lakeview ruling on public education. We tried government organization, reorganization then, we didn't get there. But we released both of those on day one of the session yeah. and let people start shooting. I mean, the, the state of the state address that day in 2003 was probably 45 minutes laying out details of all of those. This is where that governor should have been on day one. Did you write some of those cow jokes for Mike Huckabee? Or is it, those <laughs> I, just I didn't do zone. the jokes, right, okay? Right. So the legislature has gotten straight to work on education and criminal no I'm sorry they've been working on drag bills <laughs> exactly. is what they've been working on so exactly um, I, I mean, what do you I, what do you make of I mean this I, happens I a to, lot though, though in a vacuum you, at the very beginning of session I have to tell you the front page picture though in Friday's <laughs> Democrat Gazette of Senator Gary Stubblefield and a drag queen sitting together that is an award-winning <laughs> photo right now that may sum up this legislative session that one photo <laughs> if we just maybe you had a little bit more of a, a circus atmosphere yeah. around there that would do yeah. it too. All right, what do you where do you think the challenges are going to be on education reform? I'll throw out my two cents first. I feel like superintendents are going to push back on this voucher oh, yeah. system and the potential loss of revenue that is going to come. Yeah, and I mentioned Lakeview, and I'm, I'm going back 20 years, I know, but when I was working in the governor's office and we started to have to answer Lakeview, and a part of that you remember is we had to consolidate a lot of small school districts, and believe me, we found out quickly just how strong small school superintendents are, and they really are. You look at it, Roby, and they're the biggest employer in the area where they live. They probably make a bigger salary than anybody else in that area. They buy more food, they buy more gas. I mean, they're fiefdoms. It's those guys are identity, too. Oh, a yeah. town's identity revolves oh, yeah. around its school and its sports programs. Yeah, those men and women are really politically strong, and you're gonna see them pushing back on a lot of things in this session. And these local legislators, they have to listen to them. They they, have to. But is it going to be enough? Or is the honeymoon period going to be enough to get them through? I mean, I've talked to a couple of state legislators this week, and I've asked them, what's going to break you on this? If something's not in there or if something was in there and it's something you can't deal with? And they're like, no, I'm pretty good on everything that I've heard so far. Well, they, they're not getting that push from home just yet. And when those details come out and they start getting that push from the superintendent back home, from the school board members back home, from people they know and have to deal with and go to church with and go to the grocery store with back home, then we could see that change just a little bit. Again, we haven't seen the details of the education package uh, then. And to pull the cliche out, the devil is indeed in the details. Right. Well, we have uh, not seen the, uh, the criminal justice reform bill either, but we have heard some overarching things, obviously, uh, Attorney General Tim Griffin on this show earlier today laying out some things. Uh, more beds, mm -hmm. more operations, mental health services, more workforce and education programming to try to help people here, longer sentences. I could put a pretty big price tag on all of this really quick. Yeah, and where, where do you take money from public education, take money, add more money into criminal justice reform, and still do tax cuts? I, 
the balance, the budget doesn't balance. Yeah, a absolutely. And, you know, we've again got a lot of new members in the legislature, and I'm not sure they understand the constitutional mandate in our state that we have to have a balanced budget in Arkansas. I'm not sure that they understand the Revenue Stabilization Act, where you have to put things in categories, and the top category is fun funded first, and if you run out of money, category two doesn't get funded at all. I'm not sure they really understand that yet, and when we start diving down again, then we'll have to see some reality take place. That said, though, I think some of the criminal justice things in, are going to pass more easily than some of the education reform things because they aren't going to be getting that pushback from home. Just talking broadly, putting more people in prison, getting crooks off the street, making parole tougher. I mean, that's, all of that's very popular in the abstract back yeah. home. It's still going to have a price tag. Yeah, but it does have a price <laughs> it's gonna tag. It's going to have a price tag. Yeah, there are dollar signs But I there. think people will be willing to pay it, but they oh, got to know what it is. So. I agree. I, I think people are sick of crime. I mean, everybody watches across the state. 10 o'clock television news, a large part of the state gets the Little Rock market and those 10 o'clock newscasts tend to open with crime stories night after night after night. And so I think their perception probably is that crime's worse than it actually is in the state, but perception is reality in politics. Rex Nelson is the senior editor of the Arkansas Democrat Gazette and spoke with Roby Brock from our partner, Talk Business and Politics. Do you know what an anti-autonym is? Our militant grammarian Catherine Sherald sure does, and it's one of the topics she's going to cover this winter, beginning a week from today. She's returning with new conversations. To get ready for those new visits, we'll return to a visit from last spring with the militant grammarian. That's later this hour on Ozarks at Large. Arkansas Advocates for Children and Families' 22nd Annual Soup Sunday is February 5th from 4 to 6.30 p.m. at the Rogers Convention Center. This family-friendly event includes soup samplings, breads and desserts donated from a variety of local restaurants and vendors, live music, and auction items. 927-9800 or aradvocates.org for tickets. This is Ozarks at Large. Kay Adams and Nancy Pennington grew up in Fayetteville together. They've been friends for years. They have some miles between them now. Kay lives in Rogers and Nancy lives in Newport, Rhode Island. But those miles didn't keep them from collaborating on an article about, as well as a novelization inspired by, an 1885 murder in Newport, Rhode Island. Their article, published by Narratively.com and then abridged for a recent issue of Smithsonian Magazine, focuses on the death of Benjamin J. Burton, a prominent African-American businessman in 19th century Rhode Island. I talked with Kay and Nancy by Zoom, and Nancy told me she only learned about Benjamin J. Burton shortly before beginning to write about him. Which is actually kind of surprising considering who Mr. Burton was. And, you know, the short version, I guess, was he was uh, a free man, always a free man, came from Connecticut, actually went to the gold rush, made some money in California. And you have to remember that he was a free man in, in California, he was exposing himself to being made a slave. So, uh, but he was successful. He came back to Newport. He bought a house with his money and he started working for people. He was a teamster. He was hauling other people's goods. And then he came across the idea of like, well, I can do this also. And he created the very first black 
express and transfer business, which really, again, it's transferring people's goods from the docks to their houses, their guests, uh, maybe if they move across town, whatever needed to be transferred. And he was very much discriminated against in that um, venture, but he persevered and he's very, was very strong. He's very personable and he built this very successful business. And then, Kay, why don't you take it about what he did with his proceeds? So then he starts investing in more and more businesses, and he ends up creating the very first means of public transportation in Newport, which was called an omnibus system. And he, and this particular uh, uh, transportation system that he developed, actually now many of the routes, like the old, the trolley routes and the and the uh, routes around Newport today, are are based on his original routes that he developed. And then he and he was buying properties. He was owning tenements, and he was uh, he actually had like a an entertainment hall that he built and, and established, and eventually. It, it was said that he became the richest black man in, in Rhode Island. Uh, the important thing about him, not just being a successful businessman, is he was also uh, a strident civil rights activist in his community and in Rhode Island. And he was politically active and he was a member of um, many of the African-American associations, including the major church where most of the African-Americans in, in Newport attended. So Burton becomes this Renaissance man of the Gilded Age, in a sense, and, and being a black person, having gone above and beyond, um, he, he establishes himself as, uh, uh, you know, a, truly a community figure. Everyone knew who Ben Burton was. A visionary figure. But of yeah. course, this story hinges on the fact that he's found dead. Yes. And, and, and uh, what is so luridly interesting about this tale is who might have done it courtroom drama and i think it was more than a few days after he's been interred isn't his body exhumed yes twice actually only we mentioned it in the story only once uh but yeah he uh the the there was so much conflict in the community in newport over his death and the ruling, the initial ruling of suicide being just unbelievable. This was a jovial, community-spirited man who everyone knew and loved, and he, and just the thought that he he would commit suicide was uh, an untenable idea to many of the community. And I think you know we're looking at it with our 21st century eyes, and of course we'd say two shots, who's, who's going to kill, who's going to shoot themselves in the head and shoot themselves in the chest. But there was, this was right after the, you know, so not long after the civil war. And there wasn't a lot of, actually we have one, I think we mentioned one of the most prominent surgeons and medical professors in the country willing to testify. This is consistent with suicide, but you know, of course today we would, it would, it would be the opposite. They would have to prove it wasn't suicide. The science wasn't there. They had no way to uh, they, you know, they took the family's word for it. Again, because the family was, you know, this elite black family that was well known in the community, well respected, and the thought that they would kill their father or they would lie. Uh, in fact, the medical examiner or the medical examiner lived across the street from Ben Burton's wife's family when she was growing up. So 
you know, it would be like, how could I not take her, this family's word for this? I know this family, they, you know, so it kind of went sideways from the very beginning. So the science wasn't there, but there was suspicion from the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> there was talk as, as might happen with, uh, you know, a, a, a celebrity um, event. And spearheaded by uh, Ben's sister-in-law, the wife of his deceased brother. So how in Rogers and Rhode Island across more than a century, how do you put the stories together? And well, the, I think, the research was done during the pandemic. Right. It, it, exactly. Because so many of our so many of the places that we needed to go and uh, and things that we needed to find out were closed. We couldn't get them. So in the beginning, we were very much tied to archival research through old newspaper accounts. You know, um, I mean, when you talk about going down a rabbit hole of Internet research, that that was it. Nancy has always been uh, as a hobby, if anything else, you know, because of uh, her interest in Newport history, had always always been looking through archival newspapers, you know, looking for stories. And then once we found it, it was about expanding that, you know, using the Library of Congress website um, and anything else that we could that we could find and every resource we could dig through. Um, and like I say, our frustration because it was during COVID is so many places that we needed to go to dig up some research were closed to us. But we, we did rely on the kindness of strangers. Yeah. Um, we were able to get uh, people that were, even though the library was closed, it was staffed. So we were able to get the staff to do some research. Um, University of Pennsylvania Medical School, okay. uh, Rhode Island. I mean, we the archives, we, we really were lucky that people were willing to, you know, and not charge us. We'd say, hey, you know, can you look, can you send me these articles or can you see, and, yeah. and people would send us. So we, like Kay said, we probably spent a year researching before we've even started right putting anything on paper right mm -hmm. and you know and during that time nancy and i were driving back and forth to rhode island because we couldn't fly in the beginning mm -hmm. due to covid so we took that trip back and forth a couple two three times and then when it was safer to fly you know i i go up there several times a year and she comes here nancy mm -hmm. you mentioned that you hadn't heard uh benjamin burton's name until you initially stumbled upon him starting this journey for the two of you once you started researching did you find that other people were aware or had a knowledge of his his life and his you death know, it's interesting that you say that because um when i started researching um again i think anybody that does research for african americans finds it's very difficult um, especially if they are enslaved i mean we were lucky in that because ben was free and his family was free that there were more documentations probably but um so there are some books and there are some websites and so like there's a book about um, African-Americans in Newport, and that book says that he killed himself. And so if you go to Newport Town um, Hall, City Hall, and you look at the death records, they still record his death as a suicide. Now, the state record has that, a line drawn through it, and, you know, it says murdered or gunshots. But um, any information I found about him was really like a paragraph, a blurb. These were real people, so I don't mean to make light of this because it was tragedy. But when you watch an old Perry Mason, right, it hinges on a confession. This story has a confession. This story has <laughs> quite a wild ride afterward. I don't want to give too much away. But when you're researching this, did you ever have these moments like, what? 
(laughs) (laughs) All the time, Kyle, all the time. We would run across like snippets. And what was really interesting is this was reported nationwide. And, you know, they would pick up the wire and different papers would pull in different uh, parts of the original story and highlight it. So we might read something in uh, the New Haven Register versus maybe the New York Sun that would have different snippets. And then we also found that certain certain papers and certain coverage had a definite pro-Ben Burton was killed stance versus a definite pro no, it was suicide stance. And there was there was actually a, a really interest an interesting dichotomy of, of the of how the reporting took place. But yeah, I mean we would we'd uncover something really unusual. And you know, sadly, you know, you, you your desire to put it in the story is just overwhelming, but there's only so much you, you can say. But we were surprised by quite a bit that we ran onto, especially in researching the sun in law. And what's interesting is that when so we wrote this right before we published, we had the drafts of the of the final article. We'd already finished the novel. They finally opened up the archives. And so Kay and I went to the archives and we are able to find actual letters. The originals. The originals from Maria to Alan, her husband, and And Alan to her, his mother. And we learned he was actually more diabolical than we knew in what what he what was being said in these letters. Hmm. Interesting. You mentioned that there's a novel and an article. Novels and articles are different lengths. What's the difference for the two of you trying to tell the story article length and then being able to have a novelization of the events? Parsing the most important uh, the, the the most important things out of the book into the article. Again, you know, we went from 135,000 words to 100,000 words. Now we're at about 85,000 uh, words on the novel. But um, it's it's just parsing out what is indeed the most important thing for the reader to know. And our novel is written in a, in a creative historical fiction format versus writing true nonfiction and citing all the sources. So that was an interesting, uh, for me, because I've never written nonfiction, Nancy, that's her forte. So uh, that was a really interesting diversion uh, between there, the two. There, he actually, they had 11 children. Eight died from tuberculosis at various ages in their, their life. So there's, at the time of his death, the two daughters, and he actually has a son that lives in North in uh, New York City, which he has a fascinating storyline. Mm-hmm. We'd love to tell that story, but, you know, we had to cut it. So if you read the article, you're not even aware that there's another child involved. Um, and I don't know what else we left out. There are some interesting storylines that is like when we were talking with the narratively, who was the, the original publisher of this with the editor. It was like, well, if you open that door, you got to give me five, you know, 500 more words. You got to give me 2000 more words and. Uh, I think we probably exceeded it. It ended up at like 6,500 words, which I think is is a lot for them. So it, I probably he was probably very generous in letting us uh, tell more than and, and we really wanted to tell the epilogue. You know, we wanted to tell the story. And then part two is and here's what happened afterwards. And there's so much more to tell after Alan. I don't want to give away the, the, the ending, but there's just so much more to tell after the trial. 
Nancy Pennington and Kay Adams' article about the murder of Benjamin J. Burton can be found at narratively.com. We have a link at ozarksatlarge.com. They spoke with me, Kay from Rogers and Nancy from Rhode Island, by Zoom. Schools have until tomorrow to apply for the Arkansas School Garden Grant Program and the Arkansas Taste Test Grant Program. The Arkansas School Garden Grant Program is available to help schools start or expand gardens on school grounds. The Arkansas Department of Agriculture will award $500 grants to 50 schools to purchase soil, specialty crop seeds and plants, and gardening equipment. The Arkansas Taste Test Grant Program is available to help schools lead cafeteria taste tests of locally grown specialty crops. The department will award $250 grants to 20 schools to purchase kitchen equipment and utensils, serving materials, and specialty crop seeds and plants. More information about the programs can be found by following links at agriculture.arkansas.gov. Every day at KUAF, we ask questions. That's a good question. I think right now. Uh, yeah, that's that's a really good question. I, oh, <laughs> that's a big question. Um, I, so that's a good question, and I wish I had more data for you. But yeah, it's a good, really good question. Like how it's different. Yes, yeah. that is a terrific question. Asking the questions that matter to get you the answers you need. You can help keep public radio curious when you donate. Give online at supportkuaf.com. And thanks. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. Musician and songwriter J.D. Clayton is an Arkansas native. He lives in Nashville now, but regularly returns home to Fort Smith. And he has performed on our program previously before he moved away. The distance between Nashville and Fort Smith, his travels, and more were part of the inspiration behind a new album from J.D. titled Long Way From Home. The album, his first full-length effort, will be released everywhere on Friday. In advance of that release, Ozarks at Large's Timothy Dennis recently caught up with J.D. via Zoom. He says he started writing the album not long after moving to Nashville. My wife and I moved to Nashville three years ago, and she was working as a nurse at one of the hospitals here, and I was just doing odd jobs here and there while I was trying to get music going. And shortly after we moved, COVID hit, and I had to go work for a landscape company. The coffee shop I was at at that time had to shut down along with every other business in town. And so we, yeah, just hopped on a crew and started doing irrigation and, you know, planting at different commercial sites. But I didn't want to give up on, you know, the music dream. So I kind of used that time to start working on songwriting. I was doing a lot of research into different types of Americana, rock and roll, country rock type of music and trying to learn production and how they made records. So by the end of about the end of the pandemic, I guess it was spring of 2021, I had called a producer friend of mine and said, hey, over the last year, I've written about 10 songs and I need you to set aside two weeks for me in the studio because I'm ready to record. And I didn't have all the songs finished. I didn't, you know, wasn't 100% ready, but I just knew if I didn't force myself to have a deadline, 
and force myself into this situation. I knew it would never happen. I had been kind of playing the singles game for a while that a lot of artists, you know, fall prey to early on when they're trying to get their career started. They just, it's cheaper or it seems to be cheaper at the time. You know, you can just make a single, put that out and start building the following. And it's not a, it's not a bad route by any means, but I just knew to get the PR that I knew I was going to need to be able to build fans that were looking for more content and all, all of these things that I wanted to do going on tour, you know, doing headline tours, all of this stuff would not begin until I had a full album. And so over the course of 2021, we recorded that record, mixed that record. And last year, 2022, I took that record all over Nashville and played it for anybody that would listen. And it's been kind of a fun ride. It's met a lot of great people and a lot of people have been willing to lend a listening ear and yeah it's music's not easy but it's pretty rewarding when when you hear somebody say they like they're like your songs Smith and Nashville, they're about 500 miles apart by I-40. Now, this may seem like an obvious question, but is it being that far from home part of the inspiration for some of the songs on this album? Definitely. I mean, as you know, Arkansas was hit pretty hard by COVID. And at that time when there was a lot of confusion and nobody really knew what was going on, it just made more sense to just stay in Nashville. There was no need to come home. My wife still had her job. She was still bound by her initial contract with the hospital. I was working at this landscape thing and, you know, it was just, it was an unfortunate situation, but it was like, you know, we just need to ride this out and see how long it goes. And it went way longer than anybody knew it was going to go. And uh, next thing you know, you hadn't seen your family in over eight months or longer and yeah, that's so to answer your question, yes. Everything that happened in the last three years, leaving home and moving here, uh, influenced this record and the stories and the feelings I was feeling at the time and the depression and 
just everything that was weighted around our living situation came out in those songs. I read the letter you sent this morning I drank my coffee and imagined you here The weather's good but they say rain's coming Will you buy me a plane ticket out there What are some of the standout tracks on this record? I know that it's difficult choosing song babies over other song babies, but like, are there any that really stick out as your personal favorites? I love Beauty Queen. I think it feels so good to me the way we captured it. It's something that I want to listen to personally when I'm just driving through the woods. I also love the way that Goldmine feels. I think that we were able to capture kind of a neat swing in that song. But probably the song I'm most proud of is Cotton Candy Clouds. That is just, you know, about as big a tip of the hat as I can give to the Beatles and some of the uh, late 60s rock and roll. It was extremely difficult in the studio. The producer that I was working with and I had a hard time kind of laying out the form for the song. And it wasn't until the day we were set to record in the studio that I went home and went for a walk and just did a couple laps around this park that's near my house. I pulled out my voice memo app and just started humming the song, how I heard it in my head. And that was what ended up being the form of Cotton Candy Clouds, as you hear it on the record. The ending and how we closed the song, it's just very, it's as big as I could imagine it. So yeah, that, that's probably the one that I, I hold closest to me.
that's kind of what I was raised on. My dad had, you know, only a few CDs in his car. One of them was Abbey Road. The other was like a late 70s Rolling Stones record, forget which one it was. And then then he had a Jack Johnson and a John Mayer album from like, you know, 2001 or 2002. So my influences are late 60s, early 70s rock and roll, and then early 2000s singer-songwriters. And that's just kind of all I listened to as a kid and uh, even, you know, into uh, junior high and high school. It, it really wasn't until my senior year of high school that I discovered Old Crow Medicine Show and Chris Stapleton and uh, slowly found my way into the world of country music. You've been in Nashville for a few years at this point. What has it been like to transition from you know living in Fort Smith, which has a smaller but very vibrant music scene, to living in Nashville, a city that literally banks itself on being a music city? It's interesting. Fort Smith, though it's much smaller and has, I mean, not even close to as many musicians as there are in Nashville, but yeah. something I found was in Fort Smith, the few guys that I did find and connect with after I graduated high school and before I left town, they were exceptional players. You know, there was only a handful, but they all were really talented at their instrument and had all been playing music for a while. And then, you know, moved to Nashville and there are players on every corner, you know, a million guitar players, you know, 500,000 bass players. It's just, you can knock on every door on this street in this neighborhood that I'm sitting in and pretty much find a musician. But it doesn't necessarily mean that the quality is there. That's kind of been something that's shocked me a little bit. There's, I guess it's just because there's so many people here that think they can do music and decide they're going to move and they're going to try it out. You run into a lot more players that are just kind of mediocre and amateur than you do guys that are uh, exceptional players. Yeah. So it's a music town. And that's nice because all your resources are here. If you want to you know, start a business or get into the business, join the industry, it's all here for you. But it still, you know, it's not handed to you. You got to you know, work extremely hard, I think. You recently opened for Old Crow Medicine Show. And on your current tour, you're opening some dates for Tanner Usry. You've also opened for people like Randy Rogers and Paul Coffin. Do you ever have to stop and remind yourself that you're actually doing the thing, making music, touring, sharing stages with nationally recognized acts? Yeah. Yes. I'm very guilty of just keeping my head down and not stopping to smell the roses. And I was, I had a, a longtime friend from Fort Smith in Nashville last week, and we were going for a hike. And he just stopped and just said, you know, man, do you, do you realize what's happening right now? And, uh, <laughs> just, it just hadn't occurred to me, you know, that all these things are, you know, starting to take place and moving in a positive direction. And I'm just super grateful, but I do need to work on that. I should stop a little more and, and take it in because it's, it's such a fun ride, but I'm guilty of just grinding and keeping my head down and I think there's good in both those things, but I, it's it's important to remember the journey and enjoy the process of getting to where you're going. So when's the next time you're going to be in Arkansas? Well, probably pretty soon. 
I've got several dates in Texas that are going to be coming up. I've got, like you mentioned, the the dates in Colorado with Tanner. And so we'll be passing through Arkansas pretty regularly. I do have on the 17th, I'm going to be playing with Dwight Yoakam at the Simmons Bank Arena in Little Rock, Arkansas. So that's that's a huge one for me. It's kind of weird to even say that out loud. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah. Dwight and his team have invited us to come open in my home state. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, it, it's this whole thing is, is the best. It's just been so fun to get these opportunities and meet these guys that I really, you know, I listen to their music beforehand. I like them. I respect them. And then to meet them in person and watch them perform, you know, up close. And it, it's just, it really is a dream come true. J.D. Clayton speaking with Ozarks at Large's Timothy Dennis via Zoom earlier this month. The album, Long Way From Home, will be released everywhere this Friday. You can find out more about him and his music at jdclaytonofficial.com. Good news, our militant grammarian Catherine Churls will return with new thoughts, facts, and quizzes about words and language beginning a week from today. To get ready for her return, we're sharing again a visit from last spring when Catherine concentrated on the joy and fun of punctuation. You know, we've talked about how hard it is to talk about punctuation on the radio. Yeah. But punctuation errors or alternative ways of punctuating the same sentence can make for some fun. So let's have some fun. Uh, uh, let's do it. <laughs> I'm going to try to make this a quiz for you. Oh, and the fun has yes. just so the ended. Fun yes. Again. <laughs> yes. This is for me. Yes. So here are three words. Mm-hmm. How would a comma make a difference? Let's eat grandma. <laughs> Okay. All right. I, oh, uh, no, we're just going to keep this above board. Uh, let's eat, comma, grandma. You're, you're saying to your grandmother, let's have dinner. Uh-huh. And alternative, without the comma. Is, you know, the Donner Party. Yeah, cannibalism. Sorry. Right. Yes. <laughs> okay, here's another culinary punctuation pair mm-hmm. and a homophone to boot. Okay. One might be said to a child. The other would be a command to a farm animal. Mm-hmm. Eat your dinner. So if I was saying it to a child, it's like the green beans are in front of you. Mm-hmm. Eat your dinner. And how would you spell the middle word? Eat, Why, your, eat your dinner. Yeah. Y-O-U-R. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Okay. And then what about a command to a farmer? Oh. <laughs> and look, I eat meat, so I shouldn't have a problem with this. But eat, comma, you are dinner. So you want to fatten the pig. Yeah, except the comma's a comma splice. you got to use a period. This this uses an exclamation oh. point. But. Eat, mm-hmm. you are dinner. Yeah, and then how's, yeah, you spell Y-O-U apostrophe yeah, R-E. Right. The okay. cow must fatten up because it's going to be a You dinner. know what would work there is eat, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> <laughs> you are dinner. That goes back to last week, folks. Then we'd be omitting a lot of stuff (laughs) that we don't want to talk about. Okay. Okay. All right, Cal, which would you rather find in an old wallet in your dresser? Mm. $25 bills or $25 bills? (laughs) That's a good one. I want the 20 bills that are in the denomination of five because a $25 bill is counterfeit. So punctuation would you use? You got a hyphen. Between? 20 and five. Right? No. 25. Oh, 20. It's not. Well, you don't want the hyphen. Right. Right. Because 20 hyphen 5 is 25. But 20. But you still need a hyphen. For the most amount, you still need a hyphen. You still need a hyphen. Mm-hmm. If I'm looking for 20 bills that have Abraham Lincoln yes. on them, I'm yes. going to need a hyphen mm-hmm. in there. Mm-hmm. 
Oh, oh well, of course, yes, yeah. absolutely yeah, right. Yeah, because it right. modifies bills. Yes, yeah. right. So $25-$1 bills is $100. Right. And $20-$5 bills is $25. Right. Yeah. One of the most hotly contested questions among punctuation snoots is about the Oxford comma, mm-hmm. known to journalists as the serial comma. Tell us about the argument, Kyle. Well, so the Oxford or serial comma comes if you're listing several things, three mm-hmm. things at least. Mm-hmm. This, comma, that, comma, another. And. And, right. And another. Mm-hmm. And there are some people who say that last comma is mm-hmm. unnecessary. Right. I think it can vary. It does. Yeah. Uh, we start out teaching new journalists, never use it. Yeah. Don't use the serial comma. But then we show right. the exceptions of when you have to. Cause it's it for making confusing. sense. Yes. Yes. That's right. That's right. the number one commandment. Yes. Okay. So um, how does the presence or absence of the Oxford comma change the meaning of this sentence? Mm-hmm. I want to thank my parents, Margaret, and God. <laughs> I want to thank my parents, one object of thanks, Margaret, another, and God, the deity, Mm -hmm. a third. And what does it mean if it says, I want to thank my parents, comma, and no Oxford comma? Then, I want to thank my parents, parents, Margaret, and God. (laughs) My parents are Margaret and God, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Okay, a text to a girlfriend could easily be misunderstood with poor punctuation in this series of words. I'm sorry I love you. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> You're not good for me. I shouldn't be in love with you, and I'm sorry that I am, but I am. Yeah. yeah. And then how can you make it something else? I'm sorry. I'm in love with you. A period. I'm yeah. sorry. Period. Uh-huh. I'm in love or with you. Or a semicolon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. <laughs> be- but in journalism, you wouldn't use right. Semicolon. We don't use semicolons that way. I do want to talk about semicolons in the future. Yeah, we will. bring one because okay. I'm so All confused right. by them. Okay. Um, and one of my former editors said I should never be allowed in front of a typewriter with its semicolon intact. <laughs> <laughs> One of these pairs could describe a photo from KF from a KFC ad. Mm-hmm. The other could describe a photo from a 1950s radiation gone wrong movie. Oh, okay. Man eating chicken. Right. The ad you got a man eating a drumstick. Mm-hmm. It's a picture. Man eating chicken is a fowl that goes after okay. human beings. And how do you make the difference? Hyphen with man eating. What the 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 monster? Yeah. Right. Between hyphen? Man and eating, because mm-hmm, it right. describes chicken. Right. And the other one has nothing right. but period, yeah. Right. And actually, it doesn't even have that because it's not a sentence. But right. Okay. As spring arrives and gives us a few really warm days, mm-hmm. I regret leaving my Aquafina bottle in the car. Or maybe I've got tummy troubles. You're talking about hot water bottles. Uh-huh. Right. Yeah. Hot hyphen bottle. Hot hyphen Water. Water. Bottle. That's one of those things that you use to cure something. Yeah. Or allegedly yeah. cure something. Yeah. Hot water bottle is it's just hot to the touch. And, it and it's your water bottle. Right. Any right. In it. Yeah. <clears throat> it's a water bottle and it's hot. Yeah. Okay. This is a popular Facebook meme featuring Rachel Ray. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether it's real or not. I find inspiration in cooking, my family, and my dog. Back to the cannibalism here. Uh, I find inspiration in cooking, comma, uh-huh. my family, and my dog. Those are three different things. Right. I find inspiration, no comma, 
in cooking my family and dog means we need to talk. Cannibalism and yes. whatever and eating dogs is. Yeah, just wrong. <laughs> wrong, yeah. Uh, so the first one has a comma after cooking. Right. I find inspiration in cooking my family and my dog. And now I don't that's, think you, you don't need an Oxford oh, comma there. I don't think you do either. I think you understand mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And finally, something to make our feminist listeners either cheer or boo. Uh-huh. And this needs a lot of punctuation oh. in, in, in one instance. A woman without her man is nothing. Well, that's just, you know, old school rudeness there. Right. Like, you, a woman's got to have a But a how husband. can you punctuate it to make it a feminist statement? A woman without her man is nothing. Oh, are we using a semicolon somewhere in here? <laughs> and, uh, cu- close. Uh, a, a woman. Oh, oh, a woman, colon. Mm-hmm. And what was the rest of it? Without her man is nothing. A woman. Without her? Comma, there a man is nothing. Go. Yeah, wasn't that fun? It, it was. Yes, it actually was. Our militant grammarian <laughs> is Catherine Sheralds, and that conversation with the militant grammarian first aired on Ozarks at Large last May. Next Tuesday, she's back with new segments about language. This is ninety-one point three KUAF, Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Rogers, and Wyola. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. Contributors today included Timothy Dennis, Roby Brock, and Catherine Sheralds. Matthew produced the show inside the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2. You can keep up with what's on our show with the Ozarks at Large daily newsletter delivered to your inbox every day for free. More information at KUAF.com. From the Carver Center for Public Radio, I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellums. Be careful out there. We'll be back with you tomorrow. Please be well.